Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 14 through 30. John chapter 19, verses 14 through 30. Allow me to read this passage. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed them him over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garment and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I am thirsty. A bowl full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear Lord, as we continue to study your word, open our hearts to these truths. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in the horrors that we witness through this passage because they are meant for us. They are our gift of salvation and eternal life. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Thank you for what it means to our freedom of sin. Lord, guide us in our study. Help us to apply it to our lives so that we might live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you notice as we read through John, he does not go into a lot of the details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke go into. The Synoptic Gospels uh, were written much earlier than John, and John knows that his readers are very familiar with these other Gospels and all the details that they have. And so John tends to kind of focus on specifics. 
he tends to focus on Jesus' fulfillment of prophecies. Here he also focuses on Jesus' compassion. And he also focuses on Jesus' control in these situations. And so I actually began with the last two verses that we left off with last time. Uh, basically because they help us to understand the timing and the control that Jesus had over what was taking place. If you remember, he sent Judas out and said, what you must do, do quickly. And that kind of set everything into, into a fast pace because within really about 24 hours, Jesus was arrested and then he was uh, scourged and then he's crucified. So in a very short period of time, Jesus had basically commanded for the time frame to be as it was. If you remember, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they did not want to arrest Jesus during the Passover feast because they were fearful with all the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews who come there and those who had uh, said, you know, Hosanna, praise the uh, the son of David as he came into Jerusalem that week, that Sunday before, we see that they were fearful of what might happen if they did arrest Jesus during the Passover. But Jesus forced the issue. Why? Because he knew the exact time that he was to give his life. Look at verse 14, and the, it is now the day of preparation of Passover, and it's about the sixth hour. Now, here's what we need to understand. This is the time that the Jewish leaders, the Jewish priests, began sacrificing the sacrificial lambs, that all those pilgrimages came in to sacrifice for the atonement of their sins. This is the one time, one day of the year where they were sacrificing an animal, shedding the blood of that animal for the atonement, for the forgiveness of their sins. It just so happens that about noon, Jesus is being led for crucifixion. At the exact same time, the priests began to sacrifice those lambs. Now, some people question, well, Luke says about the third hour instead of the sixth hour. Well, the third hour is actually a three-hour period of time from 9 o'clock in the morning till about noon, till noon. Then the sixth hour is from noon till 3. And if you notice, the scripture says here about the sixth hour. So if it was before noon, it would still actually be a part of that third hour. So they don't really conflict. It's just a way of looking at the time frame. But we see that Jesus is again in control of every single part of what's going on. See, a lot of people say, well, Jesus was murdered. He was martyred. He was crucified. Well, Jesus actually gave his life. That's something we need to understand. Man was not in control of Jesus' death. Jesus was in control of Jesus' death. So we look and we see that according to uh, Matthew, Jesus died at uh, the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, the time when the sacrificial lambs would, uh, was being given, and he became the ultimate sacrificial lamb, not only for the sins of a family, but for the sin of the world. Now we look at Jesus' fulfilling prophecy in verses 17 and 18, as well as verse 23. We see that Jesus, even on the cross, continues to fulfill prophecy. See, he had already fulfilled multiple prophecies, being born of a virgin, being born in Bethlehem, being called a Nazarene, so many others. But even here in his final hours, hanging on the cross, he continued to fulfill prophecy. Notice that 
he allowed himself to be led to the place of crucifixion. He didn't fight it. He basically was insisting on this time. If you wanted to go back, Isaiah chapter 53 is a messianic uh, prophecy of Jesus. And verse 7 says, He was opposed and he was afflicted. And he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like the lamb that was silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. But see, Jesus was not a helpless victim. He was not a helpless lamb being led to slaughter. He gave his life. And that's something we definitely need to remember and understand. Uh, even all the way back to Genesis, you see a kind of a foretelling of what took place. Do you remember Abraham, commanded by God, takes his son Isaac upon a mountain, and his instructions by God is to sacrifice his son Isaac. Do you remember how the, the wood for the sacrifice was to get up there? Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice. Jesus carries the wooden cross for his own sacrifice. So we look and we see so many ways that the scriptures are being fulfilled. And again, we see another. Jesus' own predictions that by being crucified, he would be lifted up. The cross would be lifted up for all to see. We see in several different places where he himself predicted this. John chapter 3, verse 14, two verses before that wonderful John 3, 16. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. If you recall, the children of Israel were out in the wilderness. They had been very disobedient to God, and God sent serpents, and the serpents would bite the, the Israelites. And they were dying from this toxic poison. They were dying because of the sin of disobedience. Well, here's the situation. God commanded Moses to make an image of the sin, the, what was causing their death, the serpent, and put it up on a pole. And as the commandment was, as the people looked upon the serpent, they were healed of the poison from the serpent bites. Well, the same thing is for Jesus. See, he is now the representation of the death penalty of our sins, just like the serpent was. And when he is nailed to the cross, he becomes the visual thing that we're to look upon to see that he is now representing our sins. He is dying for the penalty of our sins. And so he himself predicted that if he be lifted up just like the serpent in the wilderness, that men would look upon him and be saved. Then he also said in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the type of, the kind of death that he was going to die. If you remember, basically what the Jewish leaders were accusing him of was blasphemy. The typical execution for blasphemy is being stoned to death. But Jesus was not to be stoned. He was to be lifted up. He was to be crucified on a cross. And so he predicted his own type of death. Even Psalm chapter 22, another uh, messianic passage, verses 15 through 18 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Remember, Jesus is thirsty. And you lay me in the dust of the death. He was laid on the ground to be hammered into the cross. 
And for dogs have surrounded me all the enemies that had cried out, crucify me. A band of evildoers encompassed me. He had thieves on both sides of the cross. And then something that was unheard of when David was writing this song. They pierced my hands and my feet. A perfect illustration of being nailed to the cross. A form of crucifixion that was not known during that time. I count my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And my clothes, they cast lots. Exactly what took place when the soldiers took Jesus' clothes, ripped open the outer garment into four pieces so that they could each have a part, and realizing that the inner garment was seamless, they cast lots for it. Hundreds and hundreds of years before, God used this psalmist to describe exactly what would take place there on the cross. In its dying moments, even these tiny details were being fulfilled from Scripture. Remember, no man caused Jesus' death. Jesus gave his life. Now we look at Pilate's charge. Now, from research, anyone who was crucified had a plaque, and that plaque would be tied around their neck as they carried their cross to the place of crucifixion. On that plaque was written the charges of why they deserved this heinous death. When they got to the cross and they were nailed to the cross, then that plaque was taken off their neck and nailed above them. Now, Pilate has been used by the religious leaders. They know that Pilate is on thin ground between himself and the Roman officials. They have found that any time they, they bring complaints against Pilate, that Rome is one more step closer to removing Pilate from his position of leadership. Pilate knows this. And Pilate, for several different times, said, I find no guilt in this man. I'm ready to release him. But they would not release Jesus. They would not take Barabbas instead of Jesus. They would not listen to Pilate. They kept saying no, even after, after scourging him almost to death, where Pilate says, look at him, he's almost dead right now. Have compassion, have pity on him, let him go. They said, no, crucify him. We want it all the way. We want him dead. So Pilate gave in, even in those last few verses, where he said, behold your king. And they said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And these Jewish religious leaders blaspheme God by saying, we have no king but Caesar. That's what Jesus was facing. Pilate had been used. Now he has given Jesus over to be crucified. But Pilate wanted to have the last word. Notice what Pilate did for the, for the accusation. He had written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Well, this upset the religious leaders on two fronts. Number one, for them to be claimed to have a king that was from Nazareth was unheard of. See, Nazareth did not have a very good reputation. Even when Jesus' own disciples, as they were being called, Philip went and found Nathanael and said, We have found the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. 
And even Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he knew the, the bad reputation that was of Nazareth. And for the accusation be the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, was a slap in the face. But then they also, as they read it, said he is being charged as king of the Jews. And they said, we have never called him king of the Jews. He only claims to be king of the Jews. So erase that, redo it, put it the way we want it. Pilate, I think, snickered and sneered at them and said, what I have written, I have written. In other words, it is settled. I'm having the last word. I'm telling you right now, this is my accusation because this is what we see. Little did Pilate know that he was actually proclaiming to the world around him the truth. Jesus, the Nazareth, king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. But he's not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Now, something that may kind of escape our understanding, the accusations were written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Hebrew was the language of the Jews. So all the Jews read that and they could see it as a taunt towards them. Greek was the common language of a whole Roman Empire. So of the million plus people who were now in Jerusalem that day, as they passed by, they could easily read what the accusations were. Latin was basically the law, the language of the law. And so it was basically a technicality to write it in Latin to, to officially say this is what this man is being accused of. So we look and Pilate, in spite, had written these words. The Jewish officials were upset, but the whole world around saw that this man was king of the Jews. Now, we see the fulfillment of the prophecies. We see even Pilate being used to proclaim Jesus as being the king. But now let's look at the loving compassion of Jesus. Now, let me just stop for just a second. Jesus has been scourged. We described that a couple weeks ago, where basically the flesh on his back has been ripped off by a whip with barbs in it. Also with, like, ball bearings have been beating him, causing internal bleeding. He's barely alive. Then he's been nailed to a cross, and he's hanging there. He's been hanging there for almost three hours. Yet he looks down, and in his agony, he sees some familiar faces. First is his mother, Mary. Next is her, his, her sister, Salome. She is the mother of James and John, two of the apostles. John, the one who writes this gospel. Then we also see another Mary, Mary, the wife of Clopas. She has a son that's also uh, an apostle. He is called James the Lesser, also known as James. And then we see another Mary, Mary Magdalene. Jesus had cast out demons from Mary. And from that time forward, Mary had followed him throughout his earthly ministry and had ministered along his side. Four women. And then we see a young man. And... <clears throat> 
He never identifies himself because he's the author of this gospel. He always identifies himself as the apostle or the disciple that Jesus loved. That's John. He is the only apostle brave enough to be seen at the cross of Christ. So we look and we see Jesus, after hanging on the cross almost three hours, after all the pain and torture he had gone through, looked down with compassion, concern, and sees his mother. We assume that she is now a widow because uh, Joseph has not been mentioned since he was 12 years old in the, uh, when he went to the temple. He's never mentioned again in scripture. She is now a widow and she does have other children, but for some reason, Jesus looks at the faithful man beside her. And he says, mother or woman, behold your son. Then he looks at John and says, behold your mother. From that day forward, John took her into his own household, made sure that her needs were met, that she was basically a part of his family. Can you imagine being on your deathbed with such agony racking through your body and for your main concern be for others? But that's the heart of Christ. And that's really what he's trying to teach us is get your mind off yourself. Think about the needs of others. Think about how you can minister to someone else. Make sure that their needs are met. And when he just shared about a great need, you know, whoever her caregiver has been, has been thinking only of self. I'll show up if I feel like it, and I won't if I don't. That's not a caring, compassionate type attitude. Yet, if we're not careful, we may have that same type of attitude. See, our world has this mentality, it's all about me. I don't care about anybody else. These students wouldn't be here if that was their mentality. They're here because they have a heart of compassion. They want to minister to the needs, spiritual needs of others. So we look and we see that just before Jesus breathes his last breath, he's thinking of others. Now we come to Jesus' last words, verses 28 through 30. And he's saying probably what I should be saying, I thirst. I think my sinuses have gotten me a little drier than normal. I've been drinking water all morning long, but for some reason I'm a little hoarse. He said, I thirst. Now, this is not uncommon for somebody hanging on the cross. He'd all, already lost a lot of body fluids from the scourging, being hanging on the cross for some three hours. The last meal that he had was the evening before, earlier that evening when he ate that last meal with his disciples. And so he says, I thirst. And there's a reason why he says that, because he has one more thing to say, and he wants to say it with a loud voice. So typical thing for Roman soldiers, they didn't have the luxury of having fine wine and nice meals. What they drank was basically soured grape juice. Soured wine is what they called it. And so they would carry a wine sack. They would carry something that probably had something in the form of a lunch because they were on guard that entire day during the crucifixion. And so at least one of them had a jar of soured wine. And so they dipped a sponge into it, put it on a stick, lifted it up for Jesus, and he put it in his mouth and took enough of it so that he could get the moisture so he could clearly speak. 
And then he said, It is finished. And according to the other Gospels, he said it in a loud voice. It is finished. Now, if he could say it that loud, more than likely he had enough strength to stay alive for a little bit longer. But according to the scriptures, after he said this, he gave up the spirit and died. He died according to God's timetable, according to God's obedience. He was always obedient to the Lord. So he didn't die of asphyxiation. He didn't die of dehydration, didn't die of loss of blood or any other reason. He died because he gave his life back to the one who creates all life, God the Father. He had fulfilled his entire ministry on earth. Those three words that we have are actually one word in the Greek. It's tetelestai, tetelestai. And we translate it as it is finished. Really what it encompasses is what is needed to be done has been done. Everything has been completely finished. Now, what is it that Jesus had come to do? If you have your Bibles open and want to, go back to John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29. Way back when John begins to start this gospel, if you remember, he starts off by describing Jesus as being God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then he goes down a little bit further and says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he starts describing this man called John the Baptist, who was a forerunner of Christ, who was the one who to, was to point others to Christ. And John chapter 1, verse 29, John sees Jesus coming to him. Here's what the scripture says. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. Here, Jesus, last words on the cross, it is finished. I have just taken away the sin of the world. I, I'm dying for them. I'm dying for the sin of the world. I'm perfect. I've never sinned. I'm the only one worthy to make this sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the world. We cannot understand what happened on that cross. Our minds are too finite. But the other scriptures say that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the one and only time that Jesus called God the Father, God. He always called him Father otherwise. And it was the only time in eternity past through eternity future that God turned his back on his son, Jesus. Why? Because God cannot look upon sin. And Jesus was the sin of the world at that moment. So it is finished. He died for the sin of the world. He had completed his mission. No one else could do it. He did it. And there's nothing else that can be done. We'll get into a time of celebration a little bit later. Because he doesn't stay dead. We all know that. But we look and we see that that shout on the cross, it is finished, is not a cry of help. It is not a mourning cry. It's a shout of victory. Because he knows that he has fulfilled the entire purpose of his earthly ministry on the cross. Kind of wrapping this up, 
How, how does this apply to our lives? Well, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that God had given for him to fulfill. He had become the gift of God. He had been, become the Messiah, the gift of salvation, eternal life. You've got to remember that Jesus was not martyred. He was not murdered. He gave his life on his own accord. And then we have to remember what Jesus came to do, he fulfilled when we hear the words, it is finished, that's something for us to rejoice in. We hate to think about Jesus suffering on the cross. We hate to think about the pain and the torture he went through with the scourging and the nails being hammered into his hands and his feet. That really is not what hurt Jesus. The greatest pain Jesus ever suffered was to take the guilt and the penalty of my sins and your sins upon himself and hang on a cross in our place. He died for us in our place. He took the only penalty that he could take so that we could die a physical death but not die a spiritual death. See, we'll die a physical death and this body will no longer be alive but we will live forever because God has given us eternal life only because of what Jesus did. When he said, it is finished, that's what we need to understand. There's nothing else that can be done. You cannot do a single thing to save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't buy indulgences. You can't do anything to earn salvation, eternal life. Jesus finished it on the cross. He died for you, and he died for me. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear Lord, as we come to you today, Lord, we realize that we're helpless. We're helpless in our sins, where there's nothing at all that we can do about our sinfulness. But Lord, you did everything. You sent your son Jesus to live in a way that shows us your love, your compassion, your willingness to forgive, your willingness to cleanse. And Lord, only because Jesus died on the cross, taking upon himself our guilt, our penalty for our sins, can we rejoice by saying, it is finished. Nothing else, nothing else could do for our sins but his death on the cross. Lord, may we rejoice in the gift that you've given us through the death of your son Jesus. And let us celebrate what we know is yet to come, his resurrection and the gift of eternal life. Lord, guide us as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.